Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from both academia and industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. So I'd like to ask you first how you'd like to define who you are for the audience maybe first time listening to you. Yeah, so, so um, my name is Auke Eisbeert. I'm a professor at EPFL in, in Lausanne, the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. And I'm leading the biorobotics laboratory. So um, we are doing robotics in between um, biology and robotics. And maybe just to present myself a bit more, um, I, I was trained, in fact, as a physicist at EPFL. I did my PhD in Edinburgh in Scotland in AI and spent some time at USC as a postdoc uh, doing robotics. And I came back almost 20 years ago, so it's almost a 20 year anniversary um, uh, at EPFL uh, as a professor. So since you work in the scope of robotics and also there's other domain, but I'm curious to ask you what maybe still now in robotics, you think the harder challenges, not really addressed or touched it deeply, the harder challenge in the field. Yeah, in, as as a as a field uh, uh, as a whole, I think the the main challenge that robotics has these days is uh, first of all the interaction with humans. So how to come closer to humans, possibly even uh, wearable robotics, really having physical interaction with with um, humans. I think that's a big challenge. The second big challenge, I think, which is still not properly solved, is is good outdoors locomotion, field robotics, having robots that like animals can swim, run climb mountains, jump. I think we, we're making very good progress, but that's still, I think, where animals are, are still outperforming almost any robots these days. So, yeah, I'm curious to ask you in that case, because in, in inspiration, I, I, I'm i curious what's maybe lacking in understanding when evolution put this thing together, the locomotion, and when you try to look to that, what may be missing pieces or understanding so that we can replicate or come up with new design when you looked at that process? Yeah, I think there are multiple challenges of uh, to approach the the animal skills or human skills in locomotion. Uh, some are, are just mechanical, um, so more um, very uh, sturdy robots that have enough degrees of freedom, enough compliance, enough torque output uh, to 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 do the things that animals can do. And also, uh, especially if you want to go in water or, or be in what's called multimodal locomotion, switching between modes of locomotion, then on top of that, you have to be waterproof, dustproof, uh, impact resistant. So mechanical challenges are, are, are really still there. And then, uh, interestingly, there's a perception challenge, I think. Uh, animals are amazing with this multimodal sensory input, so vision, balance, tactile, proprioception. Uh, especially interesting the skin and the tactile uh, aspects are still uh, quite weak in, in robots. Uh, I think vision-wise we're doing very good, but uh, very well, but uh, uh, tactile aspects and proprioception are still a bit difficult. And then of course the control aspects and the planning, how, how to do both very reactive control, be, be very reactive like reflexes that animals have, and at the same time how to do some anticipation and planning uh, in, a, in a dynamic environment um, uh, and some kind of reasoning, also kind of um, just normal reasoning, what's good to do or not bad to do. I think these are all, all challenges also there, uh, kind of a bit the AI and control aspects are also challenging. 
And we look to this, what you mentioned, uh, what may be more significant or maybe we need to push more back in this direction. You think it's very significant for robot design. At least we can, yeah, have intelligence or intelligence. Yeah, I think it's a must, let's say, um, uh, if we want to really have useful robots outdoors. I think um, some of these aspects for indoor robotics are maybe less important, especially in the mechanical aspects. But to, to, to really be useful outdoors, have a robot that has... Uh, enough operation hours before breaking um, and, and that, that doesn't get stuck every five minutes and, and everything um, and basically be useful. Um, I think we really need to push all, all these boundaries much more to, to, to be really have good, good useful tools for, for stakeholders and end users. Mm -hmm. When it comes to maybe the challenges through your lab, for example, what could be something still maybe hard to understand or so challenging? You mentioned many things, but uh, one aspect very challenging, do you think, or you don't understand how we can get over this problem? Yeah, maybe a very concrete example, uh, which is a bit of a hot topic in my lab these days, and I'm, I'm happy if, if people listen and, and may have ideas of how to do it, is how to create a whole body tactile skin that's waterproof and that can give, um, that can be kind of uh, put around our salamander or snake-like robots or quadruped robots. And that can provide um, uh, interaction forces, both the normal forces, um, the shear forces, the um, uh, tangential forces, and also the location of these on the body. Because I think that's also what beautiful is animals is they can, um, they can do multi-body contacts everywhere. So they can crawl around, they know where they're touching the environment. I think we now have wonderful examples of quadruped robots, but they are good at sensing forces on the, the feet, but not good at sensing forces elsewhere. And that is very important. If you're stuck, you need to know where, you, where are the contacts all over the body, um, how to use this contact to move forward. Especially if you want to be amphibious, maybe we can come back to that later, but that's a very cool topic. How can you swim, push against water, push against mud? Uh, how can you do switching of modes of locomotion? And there, a big challenge we have um, is how to sense these interaction forces. There is a trade-off here. If you can say that there is a trade-off between these two environments, you can't really, yeah, you can't really avoid that case. Or what's the actual problem here? Yeah, there's a trade-off. You're absolutely right. There's a trade-off between um, terrestrial forces and water forces. So. Uh, there's a very specific challenge in the water is that the forces are very fairly small as opposed to a contact force on ground, but they are very much distributed. So you need to measure ideally pressure and flow of water all over the body. And these forces are small scale. So we, we, we develop sensors that can have like little force sensors that can measure the pressure on, on the whole segment. But we don't know exactly how the local, we don't have a good uh, spatial resolution. So we have a uh, we can measure these forces, but only on the big surface. And, and, um, and then these sensors are too fragile if you go to impacts and collisions. So these sensors, the range is too small to, be, to measure high forces you have when, when you do crawling or impacts with the ground. So they are not suited for uh, terrestrial applications. Yeah, so finding this trade-off of being uh, spatially good, uh, big range of measurement forces between high Newton numbers and small, that's still not there, uh -huh. as far as I know. So uh, if anyone has something, please, please write to me. Uh, we should collaborate. So I'm curious to ask you that, that case about the design of the robots, for example. What kind of maybe is more important you have to start with in design process? I think modeling 
maybe you can tell us modeling may be challenging in that case to replicate what you want to do. And which, in which basis do you go? You have to go exactly the same as animal or just you have to get some parts or completely have to change how the process of the design. I'm curious about that part, how you go for that part. Yeah. 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 So that, that really depends on, on what, what are the goals of your project. And um, I would say the field of biorobotics has typically two main goals. Um, one, one, which is to solve a problem. So an engineering goal, make a good robot that can, I don't know, swim and, and do an inspection of pipes. And, and therefore, um, you should just take inspiration of the good things of biology and not of the, the bad things. I mean, biology is not perfect. Uh, evolution is messy. So uh, the only some key aspect that you then want to replicate. So that's if you have an engineering goal. Another big aspect of biorobotics, which I like personally a lot, is, is the scientific goal of using a robot as a scientific tool to understand animal locomotion. And there, um, there is a, there's a very interesting question of um, what's the right model, physical model. You, your robot doesn't need to replicate exactly all the properties of animals, uh, but just at the right level of abstraction, depending on the question, you should match some key properties. And, and um, the design process for both, let's say, these engineering goals or the scientific goals are a bit different because indeed... Uh, in one case, you you have to be sturdy and solve a specific problem. In the other case, it really depends on the question. If the question is high level, like some of our robots are really what I would call first order approximation of the body, just like a snake-like body. Uh, we don't go further than that, but we can already answer scientific question with this uh, first approximation. Okay. So that, that influences a bit. I would say it's always important to know what's the goal and then only design the right robot. And of course, use simulation a lot. We use extensively simulation before developing robots. Otherwise, you you waste time um, making hardware, which might not be useful. That's a good point. So I'm curious to ask you that case. I think we speak about embodied intelligence. And when it comes to design of the robots being yeah, the body and the brain side, do you think the body itself, you mentioned snake, etc. You have to go from this rigid structure for example soft there's two versions of that maybe so i'm curious about your way of thinking about the body and the relationship here about the body of design and the brain and you should manifest intelligence through the body in that case or how do you see this relationship or the interplay here between the brain side and the body side yeah 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 i think that that's really a, a big lesson from biology and, and from biomechanics in particular is it's really worth uh, making the body right. So, so um, have the right compliance at the right level, the right damping at the right level, the right degrees of freedom. So um, all this field of embodiment and, and uh, soft robotics or, or merging hard and soft. Uh, to, personally, I think we, we should also have hard components. We, we have bones for good reasons. Um, but that's indeed super important. And, and um, as we well know, uh, a, a problem that seems very complex from a control point of view or perception can be simplified a lot if you have the right mechanics. Um, and, and that's an important message. Now, now, the good thing these days is, is you can also simulate those to some extent. So if you have a direct drive motor or motor with a fairly low gear ratio, as we have, Interestingly, we can simulate muscle-like properties in software with these, these motors. So um, some of our snake-like robots, they, they have a bit of passive compliance, so mechanical compliance, like a bit of uh, to take impacts and things like that. 
but then we 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 really simulate muscle like properties in 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 the control loops with current control in our motors and that's interesting because then you uh, mechanically it's much easier to design it's, it just remains a, a high end uh, motor and you do current control and you can simulate a bit co-contraction of muscles damping of muscles and and um, and basically have a fairly simple mechanical design and still have interesting body dynamics basically so I'm curious to ask you in that process I don't know if you have any kind of design failed or maybe benefits performance you never expected was counterintuitive or why is this happening or or failed I don't know the process spectrum here yeah 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 well we have many failures uh, many especially in water so many many worked uh, leakages and everything. So maybe I should say a few words, by the way, on, on the type of robots we, we develop, because maybe uh, people don't know. So we, we, we have a whole spectrum of, of um, different types of amphibious robots that we design. So lamprey-like swimmers or eel-like swimmers uh, that are uh, like elongated robots that can swim and also crawl on ground like, like snakes. Uh, we have quite a few salamander-like robots, robots with both limbs and legs. And here I think it's very interesting from a scientific point of view because salamanders are key animals from the evolution from swimming to walking. So studying them is super important to understand uh, all uh, vertebrate locomotion. And it's also interesting as an amphibious uh, prototype for, for search and rescue. And then we, we also use quadruped uh, robots that we developed. We, we had a cheetah cub, as we called it. Uh, nowadays, we, we have uh, A1 robot, quadruped robot, or the, we are lucky that Sang Bai Kim gave us um, an a, uh, a mini cheetah robot. And we also worked a bit with human robots, but there we do more, more things in simulation. So um, I would say the failures we had is mainly with our swimming robots taking water and, and, and breaking a bit. So, um, um, and interestingly, normally the, the even numbers of generations are less, not as good as the odd numbers. So generation one and generation three are better than generation two and generation four <laughs> for some reason. So we, we, we start something, we have a good intuition, it works, then we want to improve it and we're disappointed. Then we improve it again; it gets better. So we go a bit by by zigzag, up, 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 up and down a bit. Um, yeah. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So if just ask you in that case, do you believe that design process? Because I think that now we speak about good design, for example, in soft robotics and how we can use digital computation with morphological computation. But for you, do you think you have to go for intuition firstly before going to come up with design? Maybe in Inspire, maybe beyond what we have in evolution. How do you see this? process for coming up with the right design after maybe trial and error do you think intuition is so important in the first step or you have to go for yeah for example co-design process yeah yeah that, that's um it's a good question so um most of our robots are still designed mainly for scientific purposes so there we 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 a big thing we have to do is is a bit dynamic scaling so so the fact that we we want to understand salamander locomotion swimming and walking but except for the enormous uh, salamander the giant salamanders in in China and Japan all salamanders are quite small uh, so like uh, 20 centimeters or so uh, or even smaller so so at that scale it's very hard to make an amphibious robot with enough degrees of freedom with small motors so the first challenge we have is just scaling up to a, to a type of motor which is good enough in terms of tor torque output 
and small enough for that torque output and, and at a reasonable price. And, and basically, that then determines the whole dimension of our robot. So we, we use a lot of dynamic cell robot uh, motors, and, and, and therefore our robots are ten, typically uh, 10 times larger than the real animal. So that's the first constraint, is, is we, we start from the good motor that kind of has a good torque output, and then we scale up our, our models. And then we do dynamic scaling of um, the motions we want to do, like we have to scale down frequencies and, and things like that to, to have the same dynamics, like fluid dynamics, for instance. So that, that's part of the design process, is choosing the right motors and then having the kinematics and then uh, a weight distribution that more or less matches the, the one of the animal. So that's when we have a bit of scientific question. And here, there are some cool things to do in biology, like um, we, we have access to CT scans of bones. So you can have, uh, you can have good, good knowledge of the bones. There are even we use X-ray videos of motion of animals. So then you really have the perfect kinematics of the animal. And there, in the design process, for instance, for Pleurobot, one, one of our salamander robots that's closest to the real salamander, we did an optimization process uh, where we, we were optimizing the kinematics of our robot to, to find the best place where to place, place the joints in, in the spine to batch match the undulations for swimming and walking. So there, there was a bit of an optimization process happening during the design phase before we went to the hardware. So that's for, um, that's for Pleurobot. Uh, and maybe a little presence is well, one very cool project we had is, is make a fossil robot. So that's the Orobot project where um, we did the same type of things, but based on a CT scan of a fossil of an extinct animal. That was super cool for, for a super exciting project. We, we were lucky to get into nature and, and even make the cover. But based on, on the same design process we had used for Pleurobot, uh, we designed a, a very good copy of or a fairly good copy of this fossil uh, or robotus and make an orobot robot. So that was a cool, cool design process. Interesting. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you about the learning process since we speak about robotics, how or soft robotics as well, how they can adapt to uncertainty like damage, whatever. Do you think in that case, how the body and the brain should adapt to uncertainty? From your design, how you imagine a snail like that be redundant as well? Yeah, that's a very good question because we 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 were lucky to just have a, a paper in science robotics that addresses exactly that topic and um, in swimming. Uh, because interestingly, even in the field of neuroscience, there's still a bit of debate how locomotion is generated and controlled uh, between both the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. And as you know, the central nervous system is the is the the brain and the spinal cord. And the peripheral nervous system is all the nerves going to the muscles, but also all the, the sensory feedback signals coming through uh, dorsal roots through the spinal cord. And, and for even 100 years ago, there has been a debate, should we see locomotion in vertebrates as a more a central driven mechanism where the central nervous system creates oscillations, sends them to the body and then gets feedback. So a more like a bit feed forward control. Or should we see locomotion as a more sensory-driven principle where the peripheral nervous system is in charge and, and, and more uh, you should see locomotion as a, almost a chain of reflexes. You initiate a movement, you, you get into some sensory state, you get that back, and then like a pendulum, 
through sensory signals, you, you generate rhythms. And it has been a big debate uh, between Francis Sherrington, a famous neuroscientist, and Brown, um, uh, who won, they had a bit, uh, not a fight, but they, were, they had different propositions. And interestingly, we still don't know exactly uh, this beauty, how this integration of um, the central pattern generators, for instance, oscillators that can generate rhythms in the spinal cord, and the, the sensory feedback together play, generate locomotion in vertebrates animals. Interestingly, because people could isolate spinal cords and generate rhythms in, in isolated spinal cord, like in the lamprey, you can generate beautiful rhythms without any feedback, just out the, the neural networks. Most people these days were thinking it's mainly a central thing, uh, like a feed-forward thing. But the, we kind of underestimated the role of the sensory feedback as well. So to answer your question, we, we made a recent study where we could simulate all these components, the, the rhythm generating circuits, different types of feedback loops from, let's say, for instance, pressure sensors. And in animals, this leads to beautiful redundancy. We could show that exactly the same type of swimming patterns, you could either generate them by purely the network of oscillators, so a central mechanism, or by feedback loops um, and, and have it a, a sensory driven mechanism. And both coexist, we believe both coexist in the animal. And we could show that indeed, if you have this coexistence, you, can, you become super robust against lesions. You can destroy sensors, you can remove couplings between different parts of the spinal cord controllers, and the, the robot will still keep swimming. So uh, incredibly robust. Um, interestingly, like eels, in fact, if you take an eel, you can cut the spinal cord in two parts, it will still swim almost as intact as, uh, as before. So incredible robustness thanks to this combination, we believe, of central and peripheral mechanism. So I find this exciting because the, the robot allowed us for the first time to work to, with neuroscientists to systematically explore different combinations, something that's very hard to do on the real animal. And at the same time, at the end, we have a, a robot controller that's incredibly robust, that's a bit self-organized. And if you were to implement it in a distributed fashion, it would be very hard to, to break, basically, because of this very nice fault tolerance um, that's shown by the spinal cord. So that may be one, one answer to your question, is, is at least uh, we, we are very excited to study this combination of feed-forward feedback control, central and peripheral mechanism in, in, animal, in animals. Yeah. Very interesting. Thank you. Thanks for sharing these points. Yeah. So since we close the end, I have a few questions. Maybe the first one, what are maybe other maybe directions you think um, in robotics field could be very interesting? For example, you mentioned feedback and there's some topics about should we less rely on the feedback and more maybe more predictive in the behavior? Do you think that something would be possible to reduce the computation and something like that? And also what other topics do you think technological blocks or maybe something it's really, really uh, maybe challenging for robotics to be, yeah, studied more, understanding more, yeah. Yeah, uh, well, I think this notion of mixing very robust, reactive, ultra-fast control and mixing longer-term planning, optimization and, and learning, I think that's still a bit a challenge in, in, in robotics. Uh, Clearly, the whole field of optimal control and reinforcement learning is, is doing super well uh, and, and impressively well, I have to say. Um, 
but still uh, sometimes the time scales are, are too short, too long to do very reactive behavior. And sometimes um, it's hard to plan in advance a long time horizon because maybe the, the perception and the model of the environment is not good enough. So um, interestingly, I think that's still a challenge in robotics. And for me, very interestingly, this is still not completely not understood in animals. I think um, uh, from a, I just started a project which is exactly in that, that goal, is, is many people in neuroscience um, do not either, either the people in neuroscience are working on the motor cortex and the cerebellum, so they do learning and planning, but they forget that they, there is a spinal cord in the loop and that any planning that happens in the motor cortex is not in muscle space, but it's in spinal cord input space. So um, there's an enormous reduction of bandwidth. We, our brain doesn't think in, in terms of muscles we, or muscle fibers. We really think more uh, that would be too high dimensional for our brain. We, we really send lower dimensional signals to the spinal cord circuits, which then are in charge of, of, of creating movements. And so let's say people working on motor cortex and learning, they forget about all the functionality of the spinal cord. And vice versa, people in the spinal cord, they forget, uh, the, the spinal cord can do so many amazing things, they forget a bit that you still need a high part of your brain for, for planning movements, for, for, for visually guided behavior and everything. And, and they forget a bit about all these nice inputs that the high part of the brain sends to the spinal cord. But interestingly, in biology, therefore, there's this notion of discovering how you can do learning and planning while taking into account all the dynamics offered and the control loops offered by the spinal cord, that's still not properly solved. And uh, it's exactly the same problem as I mentioned before in robotics, mixing very reactive behavior from the spinal cord while you mix more anticipation and learning um, based on, on higher parts of the brain. And, and this I felt a very exciting field of study in between robotics and neuroscience because you, you need to think about topics in both cases, like internal models. How do you learn the dynamics? How do you learn inverse models of your dynamics? How do you learn inverse models of your spinal cord dynamics? So learning how inputs to outputs uh, work with the spinal cord. And, and these are exciting topics where I hope and I feel uh, taking inspiration from animals can maybe push a bit the robustness of, of, um, of optimal control, for instance, or reinforcement learning in, in robotics. A few questions left. The first one, how do you deal with doubt when you have new ideas with your team? I don't know. Do you deal with doubt in, in the process of creation, different design? Will we work? Not? I don't know if you have doubt sometimes. Doubts? Uh, oh, yes, all the time. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting part. No, we often doubt. We uh but we we I, i'm lucky to have a very exci exciting team that we just explore as well i think we um that's a cool thing of being in academia and and in robotics in particular it's just there's so many venues to explore and of course you have failure but uh there are many cool things to explore um and and um especially if you use simulations in the loop so that you don't lose too much time developing a bad robot or um, a bad morphology uh, they're super cool things to explore and and you learn from failure so uh, yeah things don't sometimes do, don't work but that's you still a good lesson so you still win something from failure <laughs> mm -hmm. great and what could be the most important quality for you as a researcher is something you should yeah have to keep 
always? I would say uh, excitement and originality. Uh, try to do new things, uh, explore new things, new behavior, new robots, new questions. Um, I always recommend that to my PhD students. And then you always can create a PhD thesis if you if you have addressed something that nobody else has addressed. Even if you don't succeed in, in answering question or, or maybe solving the problem, you will still have an interesting story to tell. So I would say explore explore new things and uh, be excited in doing that. <laughs> and, and also I would say we should be, we are really blessed in academia. We are lucky people. We, we, we have a salary to do, we, we pay the salary to explore cool things. So we should be really grateful for that. So uh, uh, that gives me a lot of energy, by the way, that, that, that uh, uh, we are so lucky to, to work in an exciting field. Um, uh, even things are not perfect. We, we, compared to the rest of the world, we really live a, a golden life. So we, we should be grateful for that. Yeah. <laughs> maybe a quick question here about originality and ideas. Do you think maybe sometimes it's scary for you if you go through something completely outside the mainstream? I don't know. Do you think that something could be scary a little bit in academia? Um, if you go completely ahead of the maybe the trend on be yeah. mainstream yeah that, that's of course that, that's the problem or, or uh, what 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 could be what could be problematic sometimes is you could be lonely so i i guess people who are really pioneers much in advance of other people who uh, nobody believed in them they explored things that 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 seemed crazy at the time and at the end became something so I guess there's a you can't be lonely there if you do that, um, and it can be scary because you you then yeah you you you're really in in the dark you don't know where you're going, so um, uh, yeah that that can be maybe a problem, maybe yeah. the 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 thing I often also recommend my PhD students to do is is mix a bit risky and less risky things so things that are a bit more blue sky a bit more crazy together with the things that are a bit less, more like low-hanging fruit, more, more reasonable. So mixing that, you always have something to fall back to in case of your crazy ideas are too crazy, let's say. Good one. Yeah. Lastly, I don't know what advice was given to you and was life changing. And stick to your mind, maybe. I got many good advice. Um, um, well, maybe one one I got, but it's kind of specific to the field of biorobotics. Um, it's it's important to know why you do things and and have a a target audience because I would say the field of biorobotics has a bit suffered from uh, being a bit a uh, exotic field where where people were doing cool things, a bit toys like um, crawling robots or. Or things, things that are moving in a fun way and that are doing things, but people then wonder what's usefulness. Um, and and uh, let's say it's a robot that doesn't do something better than a traditional robot, and that doesn't really contribute to an understanding of biology because it's a bit, um, yeah, not not rigorously done enough. So, I always recommend when people do biorobotics, and people recommended that before me as well, is is. Uh, make clear first of all is is what you do is it a, a scientific purpose is the do you address a scientific question and you want to convince biologists and then it's a specific type of paper and study you have to do you have to be very rigorous in your hypothesis in your experimental setup to to test your hypothesis and and there's great work happening in biorobotics to have a really a scientific goal and and that's wonderful 
or your goal should be engineering to you solve a problem but then you should have quantitative matrix to say if you do it better or not than others you should compare to others and uh, it's fine to explore a bit for some time and, and maybe have lower performance than others just to to explore but at some point the goal would then still be to have better performance and and or at least quantify it because i i have seen a few projects that are a bit in between that explore a bit some scientific scientific questions do a bit of engineering but don't do it rigorously sufficiently on both sides and then at the end that's a bit a lost opportunity and and gives a bad reputation possibly to the field because it's a uh, people say okay cool but so what <laughs> and and uh, and then uh, yeah the I had I have an impression I think now it has changed but uh, at some point the field of biorobotics was or bioinspired robotics was a bit uh, viewed negatively because of that but I think since now people do really good science or good engineering so I think it it is now uh, going back up and has a very good uh, reputation but it's more a recommendation is is be careful do things in a rigorous way either as an engineer or as a scientist that's really, really excellent advice. I can't agree more with that. What would like to say for robotics community? You would like to say? Uh, no, but uh, well, let, let's enjoy life. Uh, and, and as mentioned, I think uh, we are lucky to do what we we do. Uh, for me, I, I'm feeling blessed to to do robotics. So, it's such an exciting field, so interdisciplinary, touching so many questions and so many problems. Uh, we are really lucky and. Uh, and also, we need collaborations. That may be my final word. Is if, if people want to collaborate with me, please write to me. Uh, many cool things happen by having some beers with people and then crazy ideas. That's how we, we got this uh, uh, paleontology robotics project. Robotics is really the, the field of collaboration and, and friendship and collaboration. So that's also very important. So let's collaborate and have fun together. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Professor. Watch the honor have you. And I really enjoyed listening to you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Great, yeah, thanks a lot for having me.